Hello, this is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Get busy living. Get busy dying. Here's Johnny. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast with me, your host, Richard Shepard. And we've got a repeat guest today. It's uh, Dan Jones, the author of Man of War. And he's talking to us today about the 1991 Stephen King epic, Needful Things. So it's the town of Castle Rock, which I'm sure you know very well from uh, The Dead Zone, from Cujo, from The Sundog, and from a lot of other Stephen King short stories. And uh, it's it was purported when it came out to be the last Castle Rock novel. King had made his reputation writing about Maine, and particularly this little small town in Maine. And for this novel, he wanted to, um, I think, literally blow everything up, literally destroy everything. So he throws everything into this big, epic novel about a mysterious shop that opens up in Castle Rock called Needful Things, and its owner, Leland Gaunt, who seems to have everything that people could want, but it comes with a price. It comes with two prices. One is uh, amount of money, and the other one is a favour trick a prank and uh, it's how these tricks and pranks and favors work out in the close-knit society of castle rock and how it tears people apart that uh, provides a real horror of the story uh it's a favorite of mine it's one of the first books i remember reading when i was a stephen king fan and i hope it's a favorite of dan's dan are you there i am hello richard great to be here it's lovely to have you back dan there was a, there was a great um a great Feedback from our, our episode on Christine is one of my favourites too. So it's it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Um, yeah, and I really enjoyed the Christine episode as well. Thank you. Well, it's it's weird because as I was reading Needful Things, I kind of thought it makes an interesting companion piece to Christine because we can look at Arnie Cunningham, who finds this car, this broken down old car, Christine, and it's a wreck. And nobody wants it. Nobody likes it. It's it's it, it's it's specific to him. It's something he desires. It means something to him. And Needful Thing kind of works on the same premise that people look in the shop window and they find something that to anybody else would appear to be junk, but to them fulfills some need in them. And of course, as with Christine in Needful Things, it also has a dark side. Did you kind of see that parallel too? You know what? It completely passed me by. But now that you mention it, it's such a great, such a great parallel between Christine and Needful Things. And of course, on the the cover of Christine, it has that that tagline: um, "Ownership becomes possession." And yeah. it's the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's the same thing. People people get uh, they get uh, completely possessed by this possession that they have to own, and and they're willing to sacrifice perhaps more than they. Than they uh, than they should do in the in the process of procuring it. Yeah, but it's it's not just kind of Christine that needful things references, in my opinion, because this is kind of like a it's a wonderful digest of a lot of other Stephen King books. Um, kind of, did you get the references to things like the Dead Zone and Cujo and things like that? Yeah, they're, reading it? yeah, they're they're more overt. They're, I mean, the um, uh, well, I think it was when Polly Chalmers, isn't it, when she's going to to dig up the treasure. In, yeah. the, in the abandoned quarry that she has the the flashbacks of the uh, about Cujo and, and what goes on in the car um, there oh I missed the reference to the dead zone must admit but uh, uh, it kind of mentions it very briefly that Frank Dodd the serial killer from the dead zone was oh, a, yes, so a castle rock you're, you're absolutely policeman. right yes and when the bandstand um, gets destroyed, it kind of mentions the fact that Johnny Smith, the, the psychic from the Dead Zone, that's where he had this revelation that Frank was a serial killer. But it's it's it's, it's Easter eggs, right? It was, it was he's the guy who killed. The, he, yeah, he's the one who killed the women. With Sher- yeah, Sheriff yeah. Bannerman, wasn't it? Uh, Bannerman, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And he was killed by Cujo. I think Bannerman's referenced in the in the text directly, isn't it? And um, the other one is the Dark Half. Yeah, it's it it comes very much very quickly on the heels of the dark half needful things, and the dark half kind of has this quasi happy ending where things are kind of restored to normal, but then you get these little hints that actually Tad Bowman's life after the dark half went very dark. Yeah. Well, it gets 
very dark very quickly in Needful Things. <laughs> it so does that, that acts as quite a nice segue. I've not read the dark half. Uh, it was oh, always yeah, on. My, it was all, always on my list of things to read on on kings to read when mm. i was going through him in my teenage uh, years but I, yeah it's one of the ones that i never got around to but having reread needful things um I've, I've got a bit of a thirst to read the dark half so i think i might go out and get that at some point mm. soon it's what i think for, for for a writer such as yourself i think you'll really appreciate it because it really is about how the creative process can really kind of drive you mad. You have to live two lives, the writer and the family man. Required, and it's yeah, required too. reading for all writers. Yeah. For all tortured artists, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of writers, kings, author characters meet sticky ends, don't they? It's probably, it's his whole over is like a metaphor for being a writer. Like, don't do it. It's very, yeah, I mean, Jack Torrance in The Shining is yeah. like the, the archetype of the kind of the frustrated alcoholic writer who just who never gets his big break and just collapses in on himself and yeah it happens a lot like you say um you know, bag of bones uh it. the dark half it yeah bill denver grows up to be essentially stephen king so yeah it, it, it's one of those recurring cliches in king's work that, it's re uh, yeah misery oh yeah that's the classic that's isn't it take away suffering from art. don't be a writer it's not worth it <laughs> exactly Oh, bless you. But it's interesting what you said earlier about how it gets dark because it actually starts very light and very sweet. And when you actually read the first hundred pages or so, it's a very charming sketch of this town. And to me, it, it almost seems like a sitcom in places because it sets up all like these 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 kind of wacky, lovable characters and kind of a lot of horror is kind of finding out what happens to these people and how they get twisted by uh, Leland Gaunt. So did, did that kind of work as an opening for you? Did you kind of believe you were in Castle Rock? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I did. I think he paints the town very well. Um, I think that sense of that twee sort of small American town, American small town feel is is undercut mm-hmm. a little bit by the, the prologue where we're introduced to the town by this anonymous old man who says, well, there's Nettie Cobb. She killed her husband after after being abused by him for x number of years and yeah. and over there is uh, is Danforth Keaton who's the town selectman but uh, he may have been he's had his fingers in the till and so <laughs> they're introducing these these concept the, this idea that oh it looks quite sweet on the outside and very sort of picture book and um and appealing but there's this undercurrent of decay there's this undercurrent of things going wrong already and that's 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 what's clever about needful things is that it's not destroying something that's picture perfect it's it's taking leland gaunt takes what's already there and he just gives it a push he just says Mm -hmm. go on on your way and then things start to unravel very quickly because every all of the characters and all of us in, in life i think that's the point of the introduction is saying the, the old man in the in the introduction he says we could do with a witness around here we could do with and it's almost like inviting the the reader to become complicit in the events because any of any number of us could be one of those people in in castle rock carrying around our anger and our baggage and our and the sins that we've committed and the mistakes that we've made and all they need is just a little push a little spark and they can unravel terrifyingly quickly. And exa- and this is exactly what happens, but it doesn't just happen to one of them, it happens to all of these people. So, yeah, in answer to the question, I, I, I totally believe the town. And because it's uh, because the nature of the plot, and Leland Gord, he, he sets people off at, at odds with one another mm. um, across the town, because of that plot line where he's, he's creating this complex, malevolent web of of pranks and, and tricks across the town it needs a big cast so it's an ensemble piece and yeah they're, 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 i guess there is a kind of sitcom element to it because they're all they're quite grotesque there's a lot of <laughs> grotesque in in um, in this story so there's so some real wacko characters in this I mean, that's the one thing i sort of took away from the reread is i couldn't remember just how batshit insane this book is i mean it is all out nutso when he gets going, I mean, there is the, oh, yeah. the house, the house of cards element, which is the first half and the hundred pages at the beginning, introducing 
all of these characters with their quirks and their oddities and and then well he he, he lights the stick of dynamite and off you go everything's come everything comes crashing down yeah there's a lovely reference kind of uh, near the beginning of the book where they talk about I, one of the characters mentions twin peaks and as i was reading it, i was kind of thinking yeah this is this is kind of like twin peaks because you have this this normalcy as the, the narrator says you've been here before and um, you recognize it yeah but then you also get the idea of like there's all these twists and quirks and very kind of strange things happening under the surface I, I I love that idea that kind of Castlebrook has always had that it looks very pleasant. To kind well, of I think the Twin Peaks reference is it's it's not accidental either because no. that it's uh, it's such a strong theme in David Lynch's work as well. I mean, it's it's there in Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet, and, yeah. Uh, Wild at Heart is there in uh, Twin Peaks, like you say. Um, it's there in Mulholland Drive. It's just like, running through. You have these sort of nice. Uh, cookie it's, it's like a bit like tim burton as well he does it quite well but you have these um this quite uh amenable facades in american suburban life and then do we just need to do is sort of peel away a couple of layers <laughs> and then uh, there's something quite grotesque lying underneath that that's that, that i think it's the very first scene isn't it in blue velvet where there's a yeah 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 and it's sort of the, the, the closer that the camera zooms in then you see something shocking and it's only mm. it takes up a couple of square inches but it just shows you that it looks quite nice but there's something going on here yeah exactly i, th- I think to me that is the the appeal of this book that it it does say that um yeah we have this this town which is kind of going about its business fairly easily but it really only takes one small thing one tiny thing one domino to topple the rest of it and it really i think he does it really well he goes from like zero to 60 very quickly yeah so the last last 100 pages of the book are just it's just mental it's just we just get destroyed everything gets blown up the car the town is cut off from everybody there's a full-scale riot going on in the street yeah like 50 pages before that everybody's just like oh well what's what's going on we don't don't know what's happening you know yeah I, i i get the feeling that King probably enjoyed writing this a lot. I think he got a lot of. I can almost feel the that he grinning as he's writing the last two or three hundred pages of this book, and um, it's uh, he came out of his addiction. I think this was mm-hmm. this was the first novel that he wrote after getting, getting clean. clean. Yeah. yeah, everything but cigarettes, and it's yeah, everything but cigarettes. That's right, <laughs> and you can almost like feel him shouting, "Yes, I can." <laughs> a relatively complicated plot and not rely on over-the-counter prescription or add-ons <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think it, i i think it, for king i think it is a very cathartic book oh no doubt it, it's the end of like the 80s which have been this decade where he's gone from you know well-known writer to absolute powerhouse in terms of book deals in terms of film deals in terms of being like a recognized name he's like the big author the airport author he's on like every bestseller list and i like the idea that kind of at the end of this period he's willing to kind of blow everything up essentially yeah and the next couple of books he writes after this are actually very different and quite experimental in nature so after this he writes gerald's game which is exactly people things it's stripped down it's one location essentially and it's one person talking and after that, he's got Dolores Claiborne, which again is another interesting character piece without that big, sprawling, epic nature of it. And I, I kind of think, I, in a way, this is a book, like I said, it's cathartic. He has to kind of write it to get it out of his system. He has to write one big, epic final, like basically, fuck you to, to, to Castle Rock, to who he's been, yeah, and to kind of yeah, life. I, I really like the idea that he's sort of burning off that, that part of him, which is consumed him for so long and mm. with respect to the all his addictions as well it it, it I, I think there's a strong theme of of facing up to your addictions and sort of getting rid of all the people in the book are addicted to the to the item that they covet mm-hmm. and they buy and they keep it so possessively and uh slavishly mm-hmm. um but yeah i think that, that he is burning away that part of him that he doesn't need anymore yeah, and, and like I say, it's, it's I a yeah, I love that. I, I did, I didn't uh, twig that the next one was Gerald's Game, which is really intimate, isn't it? Really yes. intimate, very strange, uh, very almost, yeah, very tight, a tight little thriller more than anything mm. else. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I like that. <clears throat> the, the thing about um, Gerald's game and Dolores Claiborne is also the fact that they both have very strong female protagonists. And I kind of think, I think you see a bit of that in Polychalmers because I think it, it's King writing women really well. What, what, what did you make of uh, Polychalmers? I think she's it's, really interesting. I, I, I think the first time I read it, I didn't really kind of appreciate what a kind of complex and interesting character she was. But in, in the second time reading it, like with more mature eyes, yeah, I really felt for her. Her story was incredible. And yeah, she really, the strength of her and the pain she goes through, I think it makes her a really interesting character. Uh, yeah, she is. Well, her name is uh, it's Jessie, isn't it, in uh, Gerald's game? Yeah, she, Polly. Yeah, Jessie like, um, That's yeah. it. Polly's almost like a, um, a prototype. For Jesse, and there are some similarities to their characters. Uh, they, they... Well, it's interesting that Jesse um, degloves her hand at the end of it. Something yeah, extraordinary they... pain in her hands, like Polly Charmers stuff. Exactly, the pain, in, the pain in the hand is is uh, a motif common to both of the char- the characters. Polly's, I think she's a really interesting character because she falls prey to Leland Gaunt, mm-hmm. um, and <clears throat> Gaunt's um, modus operandi is to sell sell something based on the, the, the need of the customer. Sure. So they, they perceive something in this piece of tat, this, this uh, <laughs> piece of bric-a-brac, and, it, it, and they do end up, it's revealed that they are just bits of tat. They're not diamonds in the rough. They are just grey things, but they're yeah. perceived to be something of great value by the customer. So everybody goes in, whether it's uh, Nettie Cobb with her carnival glass or um, Brian Rusk with his baseball card. They perceive mm-hmm. it to be something of great value, but it's not. And it's, it's their, their need is projected onto the, the item and that makes them a slave to it. With Polly, it's really interesting because she's driven to Leland Gaunt. She, because she has this terrible arthritis in her hands, she's, uh, she, she says at one point in the, in the text, I would do anything to be rid of this pain. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So she goes to Leland Gaunt and he sells her this called an Azka, which is like a necklace. And it has uh, a locket which hangs down above her chest and there's something inside it. And she's not mm. quite sure, but it takes away her pain. But I, I, I think that Leland Gaunt miscalculates with, Pop, with Polly because she's carrying another pain, which is deeper and more profound and more affecting than the physical pain that she's going through. That's the, the pain relating to her son that she has mm. in California. So Polly's backstory, she she spends some time, she grows up in Castle Rock, but then she moves away to California and spends some time growing up there. And there's a sort of, mm. bit like Jesus in the lost years, isn't it? He's, yeah. he's sort of spent some years where nobody really knows what she's up to. Yeah, and she's in she, the wilderness. Yeah. yeah, she's in the wilderness. And she literally, or psychologically, she is out there in the wilderness. And then she comes back to Castle Rock and small town america being what it is she's sort of the 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 subject of much gossip and tittle tattle among the people and they're not quite sure what to do with her and how to how to sort of make her out but um yeah leland gaunt miscalculates because he thinks well she just needs relief from this physical pain but the real Mm. pain she's carrying is what happened to her in california with with uh, with her son and what made her come back to Castle Rock. So he misses a trick there. And because mm. she's 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 dealing with uh, this physical pain, this horrendous arthritis, which is, you know, it's, it is suffering, she's able to overcome it because with Will, she has been able to overcome it throughout her life. And it's become worse in the last few years, according to the text. <clears throat> but that that element of suffering going along with, with uh, human experience is something that's common to everybody, and she's able to overcome it. I think if if Gaunt had targeted something to do with her son, maybe yeah. something that brought him back in her eyes, mm-hmm. then um, maybe he would have captured her more wholly, more completely, more comprehensively. But as it is, I think he gets it. Okay, he gets it wrong with Polly, and she's able to beat him. She's able to beat the the uh, the creature that's living inside of the the locket. And she's able to to break the spell over uh, uh, that Gaunt has over her. So I think yeah, she's, she's a really interesting character. Yeah, she literally kind of defeats the the, the kind of the, 
the, the creature, the, the kind of the thing that represents the. Well, I think because the creature her need and her dependence on yeah, this thing, and, and just everybody destroy. else has a the, the 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 evil that they're confronting is within them. Mm. They're, they're 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 dealing with the devil, and the thing that they're trying to overcome is, or the thing that they have to overcome to break the spell is within them, and they can't do it. With Polly, it's something that's external. And that, that pain is like pain. Pain is is fundamental to experience. We all know what pain is. Sure, we can all overcome pain. It's almost mm. like an external, an external thing. You know, with will, and with with good bearing, maybe you can deal with pain. I mean, maybe maybe that's the takeaway with Polly's character. You can deal with that level of pain. Yeah, but, and it's the idea of like that. There are no actual shortcuts, and that's what Leland Gaunt is is selling. He's selling. Yes. Shortcuts. He's saying where there's it's simple, no more pain, not like struggle and kind of get over these things. It's like this is the immediate gratification. It's the self exactly yeah. what you need. And and I think like you said, that is kind of his downfall that he doesn't see people beyond a facile level. He sees somebody like um Shu Priest and he doesn't kind of think that like, this guy like needs to go to Alcoholics Anonymous and needs to sort his life out. He needs this thing, this fox fur, which is, you know, it doesn't mean anything really. It's just some kind of symbolic representation of his lost past. Well, so and, I think it's a symbolic representation of not just his lost past, but what he could have been. Yeah. If he hadn't become a, a, well, a bum and an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he, he it's, it's an idea that um, what he sells is so facile and so easy that most people would look through that and go, well, it, yeah, it, it, that's, that's nothing. And it, it appeals to the baser nature of people. It appeals to like the lust of Cora Rusk for Elvis Presley. It appeals yeah. to like the, 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 uh, like Danforth Keaton's lust for money by giving him this game that kind of satisfies his lusts. Well, that's, it, that's, it, that's what the devil does, isn't it? He appeals to your baser desires and tries to lead you astray. I mean, there's a common, common theme in, in King as well, isn't it? The, the uh, attraction of base desires and, and um, the punishment that you, oh, yeah. that you get. Or, or, and again, it's like you know, the shortcuts as well, like Pet Cemetery. Pet like cemetery you can, shortcut, you can yeah. just mourn your family dying or you can just like bury them in this ground and it's horrible, but well, you get them it's, back. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, sort of like the nature of reality and, and he's offer, Leland Gaunt is offering a chance to subvert the nature of reality. And with Pet Cemetery. <clears throat> the ultimate nature of reality is that your life is finite and you're going to die and all of us are going to die. That's the ultimate level of fundamental objective reality. You can't get past that. Oh, but maybe you can because there's this strange burial ground and we'll put the cat in it and the cat comes <laughs> back, but the cat's obviously not the same cat and it goes a bit nuts. Mm. And so the, the takeaway is, you know, if you're going to mess about with the nature of reality then you can't be that surprised when reality is going to bite you back and bite you back hard and that's the same with with needful things you can you can try and pretend that things are not what they are so mm. Duke priest can take his foxtail and pretend that he's 19 again mm. and that his whole life is ahead of him he can pretend that doesn't make it so and polly can take the the uh the Alka, necklace and locket and she can pretend that her pain isn't there but it's it doesn't work like that mm. and uh netty cobb can can buy the the carnival glass and maybe that can pretend that she can pretend that uh, she's not carrying around this history of abuse at the hands of her husband and so you can you can yeah you can take these easy easy ways out um and pretend that things are that the bad stuff in your life and the, the suffering that you have to endure isn't necessarily there and you can see past it but it doesn't it doesn't make it so so that the the reason that polly and alan to an extent alan's really interesting as well but the reason polly overcomes it is because she when she's talking to her deceased aunt i, I forget her name Evie, Evie. Evie, there you go there's also a character in kujo i think ah okay there you go uh, when she's talking to aunt evie evie says bear up to your pain you know mm. His 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 power is over need, not will. So you and she's saying you can overcome it, don't you? And you know, man yeah, up, woman up, basically, Polly. And yeah. she does, and, and Polly overcomes it. So that's that's the nature of it. You've got to de- you've got to bear your load. You've got to bear your cross because we've all got to bear one. And if you don't, things are going to go wrong. You don't get away with anything. 
Yeah, it's, it's unnatural to not suffer any pain, yeah. unnatural to kind of compartmentalize these things into, into one item. And that's why I think Leland Gaunt kind of works as an antagonist, because it's kind of hinted throughout that it, there is something deeply unnatural about him. And I love the fact that people like can't touch him, and he can't touch people without this shiver of revulsion going through their bodies. And how his teeth are kind of overcrowded in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. This lovely thing where his eyes change colour depending on who he's talking to. It's, it, it, it's, it's very subtle. And you know, at the end, it does go a little over the top, I think, in uh, yeah, turning him into like, this massive flaming demon on a coach or something like that. But throughout, up to that point, I think it plays it very well that he's, he's a monster, but it's quite subtle. You know? I, always, I, I assumed that he was being played as the devil, that he was being presented as the devil. Because the devil, for one thing, the devil's in literature, the devil is always, uh, he's always up for a, for a bet. Yeah, he's always up for a deal. Yeah, Doctor Faustus is is uh, probably the most famous, but in the Bible, <laughs> God has a bet every now and then with the devil. True. In the in the story of Job, they have a bet where the the devil says, "I bet I can turn this holy man into a bitter, twisted individual if I if you let me have enough of a go at him." Mm. And um, there's a in popular culture there's uh, robert johnson who sells his soul to be able to play the guitar at the crossroads sure. so it's it's you know it's quite common so i always took leland gaunt to be the devil and yeah. being the devil he's he's kind of uh he's the devilish side of each individual that goes into the shop so yeah he's he got that eye for human weakness he's yeah. got that eye for like what you want what is your like what is the chink in your arm or what's gonna and, you uh, and all, yeah, and all of the all of the customers who go into the shop know, at some level, they 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 are aware of what their limitations are, and they're aware of what their weaknesses are. Mm. And they go and deal with the devil anyway, because mm. they, they they know that the deal is too good to be true. <laughs> Brian Russ goes in knowing that that but that Sandy Koufax baseball card from 1956 is not worth 89 cents or whatever the hell he pays for it. Yeah, and it's signed to him as well. And it's signed to Brian. It's not worth 89 cents. But then he thinks, well, to hell with it. And he buys it anyway. And that's exactly what happens. It goes to hell. Yeah. And that's the thing. The, the deal is so unbelievable. Nobody actually says, well, I, I don't believe this is true. I don't believe this is actually happening. Well, I think yeah. it's it's like it's like the another line from the Bible, which was... Um, about the rich man passing through the the, the camel, the needle, the yeah. needle, and yeah, and actually in uh, in uh, I think it's Nazareth, there was a there was a gate called the Eye of the Needle, and it was quite mm-hmm. low. And apparently, when the the caravans used to come in to Nazareth, those riding on the camel, which would be the rich people, mm-hmm. they would have to just stoop to get under the lintel, under the arch. So they'd have to stoop a bit. So that's what the metaphor. It's an interpretation. It's an interpretation, but you have to stoop to get under. So you don't. It's not impossible. It's not physically impossible, like passing through the eye of a needle, literally. But Mm. I think it works on both levels, on that literal and that metaphorical level. And uh, it's the same thing. These guys, these characters are are dealing with the devil. They know that the deal is too good to be true. Mm. They go. They go. Go for it anyway, and uh, it goes wrong for them. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that's the thing is he 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 doesn't um he doesn't need to lead people very far into selling a bit of their soul to you. And also because it's couched in this lovely way where they pay some money and they pull a prank, but it's not on anybody they know. It's not saying, Oh, you know that person you hate. Why not why yeah. not do this to them? It's like, you know that's nobody you've ever heard of. Well, yeah. Well, why not uh, throw a spanner in there? It's like, well, why not do something simple like just leave a note under a door? Well, that's like, yeah. That's harmless. That's they say, like oh no, it's fine. I, I'm not doing anything bad here. But then they know they are. Yeah, there's no plot there. Uh, there yep. There's no intricacy in the plot in that way. Um, the 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 interesting part, the the anticipation of, in Needful Things, is the way that he sets up this whole spider's web of malevolence. That's yeah. That's he describes it as a circuit board. Yeah, and yeah. If you just reroute some of the circuits in a certain way, it, 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 that's when you get the explosions. That's you know? it, and, he, and uh, it works metaphorically, but also literally. When Ace Merrill comes back into town, mm. the no good drug dealer and petty crook, he comes back into town, and he gets him laying literal sticks of dynamite 
yeah. all over town. So, okay, so King's not messing about with this one. He's actually going to blow the whole thing to kingdom come. So, yeah, it's it's all got to go. Everything must go, as he says in the last in the last part of the book. Everything must go. Exactly. Now, yeah, King's kind of spoken before in interviews about how he wanted this book to be a reflection of the times it was written in. And like I say, it is that thing about being the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s. And he talks about how the fact that he saw the 80s as a period of excessive greed and how greed would um, eat people alive, basically. So he talks about the Reaganite era and uh, how the idea of like the, the Gordon Gecko kind of greed is good mentality really kind of corrupted people. And can you kind of see this as a product of its time? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, I think the, the, the critique of consumerism or hyper-consumerism is, is like, it's right there in mm. the front and centre in Needful Things. The people are so consumed by the need, the lust, the, the, the covetousness for these, well, for tat, essentially mm-hmm. that they're, they're worth they're worthless pieces of tat and yet people go nuts for them and you know that's a very uh cogent summary of the 80s but i think what's really interesting <laughs> about needful things is that king doesn't use uh that that 80s hallmark the mega mall on the mm-hmm. outskirts of town he doesn't use that as the uh as the target or as the um that the focal point for the, the you know the fulcrum for for the um the consequences of hyperconsumerism he's using uh, a quite twee little mom and pop style main street corner shop that's yeah it's american it. and, yeah, yeah and it's full of bric-a-brac and and little bits and pieces and oddments and bits and bobs um which is really interesting you know because you you think that well that sort of corner store americana uh, would be uh, that's off limits, I suppose, for critique <laughs> for critique and criticism. You wouldn't not necessarily go to that. And I, I was reading it thinking, uh, you know, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, that the yeah, only course, one yeah. in, in the in the supermarket, not the supermarket, in the mall. Yeah, and that that's like the, for me, that's the sort of grade A uh, satire in the eighties of hyper consumerism. Mm. And it's so it's so broad as well and, and funny. Whereas this is it, it seems odd for um, a critique of hyper consumerism to take place in a tiny little corner store. Yeah, it's odd because I mean we tend to it, it's it's kind of like the old curiosity shop, the Dickens novel, mm. which is kind of the centre of good things and kind of uh, niceness. Yeah, and yeah, you would expect it to be like a Walmart kind of thing, which would be represented as the evil um, the evil entity in these people's lives. But to have like an independent shop that kind of sells a bit of everything isn't really it doesn't really end up a business model beyond well like, I think that corrupting he, people, you know. I don't think King King's interest or his aim is necessarily the 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 businesses who are selling these things. He's aiming at the people who are buying yeah. That that's his target in the book. It's not it's not Walmart and uh, it's not uh, the, the, the 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 malls and and the big businesses, it's not the Amazons of this world, it's the people, mm. it's the buyers, it's the people who who can't help, but they, they must have this thing and they'll do anything to get it, including subjugating their own belief systems and their own value systems. And that's where that's where things go awry. But I don't think it's a critique of consumerism per se, but it's just saying, well, watch out because, you know, you might get what you wish for. Yeah, how badly do you want this kind <laughs> exactly, of thing? Exactly, yeah. And I think that's why there are, there are references throughout the text to Gaunt being very old and having done this yeah. job during, like, the plague at the crucifixion. I think it's referenced in the film that he was at the crucifixion. Exactly. And he's always kind of just sold. He's always gone around and just sold things. Well, that's, it's yeah, like a big operation. That's why, I think, that's why I think he's such a good cipher for the devil because that, that need... For in us for things to be better and to take the quick fix it's, mm. it's just it's as old as hum- as humanity itself i suppose yeah no it, well, it, it's been there. Nature, yeah and also i i think there, there are some lovely kind of references to the 1980s kind of quite subliminal in the text as well like you have um uh danforth keaton and i i i have a theory that the name danforth comes from uh, danforth quail dan quail who kind of was the emblematic of this um, stupid 1980s republicanism 
that I know King personally despised. And he was also involved in the Iran-Contra affair, which was kind of a thing that was combined finance and evil and politics quite well. Okay. There are some lovely references to these kinds of things. And also, there are some great descriptions of people's televisions and their houses and their possessions. There is this emphasis on like the things that people own outside of the Needful Things shop as well. I think it's quite fascinating. Yeah, I, I didn't know that about the, the Danforth quail, but that does seem to fit in certainly with King's politics of the of the time, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it's such a weird name. I kind of googled it, and that was like the first one that came up. I thought, oh, okay, okay there you go. Yeah, but it. I think the the crux of the of the book is that if you want to if you want to overcome the thing that's eating you, if you want to overcome the thing that's that's uh, that's potentially going to destroy you or is it, or at least it's making you suffer you know at least at the very least it's making your life not what it could be you can't you can't make things better through the quick fix you certainly can't make things better by just buying a quick fix mm. it requires facing up to it that's what polly does it's also what alan does yeah alan's an interesting character i the thing i forgot about the book the second time i read it was the fact he does actually buy from Leland Gaunt because you kind of think he's going to be this the, the guy he can't sell to this this kind of the because the, Leland Gaunt talks to him like the worst kind of person the one who's not a buyer you know, a he, tough sell a tough sell exactly but at the end he does take the videotape that shows what happens or purports to show what happens to his wife and kid which has been the cause of all his suffering because he doesn't know what actually happened and why like his wife wasn't wearing a seatbelt why they drove into the tree and this kind of thing that he actually takes at the end. And he sees through it at the end, but he also does give in as well. He is yes. also quite human, you know. Well, I think does, does, he, that, does he work for you as like the hero of this? Yes, I, th- I think so. Well, alongside Polly, I think. Mm. They're, they're, they act as a, as a dyad, I think. But it's uh, interesting that they're both grieving. Right. They're both kind of born of grief. You know? Well, they both have to have some suffering to carry with them. I think that's the point of the book. They have to have some sort of suffering that they have to bear. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's similar in some ways um and they have to face up to it because that's that's the nature of redemption and trying to make things better and drive out the bad force that is going to drag you down into the into the pits of chaos um that yeah alan he does succumb to it but i think but he like you say he manages to redeem himself he manages to rescue himself with the aid of polly so yeah. the message of hope there that even if you do succumb to these these quick fixes there or maybe maybe you can with the right attitude you can bring yourself back up but it's not easy mm, alan is, if anybody's going to do it i always thought that alan is a, the way that his character is constructed is is quite uh he would be the one to do it i mean he's he's a cop and that you know being a cop doesn't necessarily make you a good person there are loads mm. of you could be corrupt <laughs> you could be violent you know there are loads of things that you but in terms of the symbolism of a cop, at the very least, you symbolise law and order and serving and protect. You know, that's yeah. what you represent ostensibly. And that's and Alan's a good cop. You know, yeah, there's, there's a lovely moment where he's talking to Brian Ruskin, trying to get him to talk to him. And he, he says, you know, I'm a sheriff. He points to his badge and says, you know, this means I... I get rid of the bad people. I can help you if you just trust me. And you're, you're begging Brian to just say tell him tell him something because you know he he can, he can help he can try and help he can get you out of this hole you dug yourself in yeah but yeah and and maybe that's it's a it's an appeal to to all of the all of these people who are lost to to who are lost in the chaos and the chaos that they've brought on themselves by buying this artifact and you know planting a stick of dynamite metaphorically or literally somewhere in town so you're you're part of this this web of chaos that's about to erupt you could, if you, you know, reached out to a bit of order and tried to get a bit of order in your life, which is what the the cop represents, I think, in this instance, then yeah. you can you can drag it back. You can drag it back, but um, nobody and does. It's, it's 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 honesty as well. That's what these people lack because they become deceitful when they have these items. They become secretive. They just do. like an addict, I suppose. They they start lying. Yeah, and stuff. absolutely. They shut themselves away from their family. It's, they kind of um, do strange things. It's what the it's what the, the psychoanalyst Lacan, he would have called it dusting, which is mm-hmm. the thing that continually reinvents itself in your life and which provokes uncontrollable waves of desire 
in the individual and they think well they, they must obtain this thing and even if you obtain it then it just morphs into something else and when brian ross gets his baseball card well he's got it but it morphs into something else which he's got to keep it secret you can't you can't ever tell anybody about what you've done about what you've bought yeah you have to reveal what you paid for it and the dollar price is too good to be true so what else did you pay for it with where you paid for it by sacrificing a little bit of your belief system and uh, doing something pretty re- pretty horrible and pretty malevolent. And then as soon as you do that, then the whole house of cards comes down. So these people can't, they can't be honest. They, he, Leland Gaunt has tricked that potential honesty out of them by mm. doing a deal. No, I think that's extraordinarily uh, intelligent of King to write it in that way that the people get these things, but then they shut themselves off from other people because of it. And they, they have what they want, but then they lose everything else. It's not just a question of getting what you want. It's you lose your life. You lose your soul. You lose the town. And, well, you lose the community. Yeah, exactly. And the, I the think trust, of, the trust completely erodes, not just at the end of, well, it starts at the individual level, which is yeah. a very American idea as well. It starts with the individual, but if the individual crumbles and all of the individuals crumble, then the, the community's gone. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's I, that, that leads to, I think, probably the most tragic moment in the book when Brian Rusk actually takes his life. And it's an 11 year old boy, like shooting his brains out with a shotgun. And it's, it's a really, I forgot that was in there when I read it. That's a really shocking moment, don't you think? It is. Yeah. That, in fact, it's the only, I mean, maybe you could say Nettie Cobb's death is quite tragic as well. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but Brian Rusk is the only element of the book where you think okay this is this that's descended into a tragedy everybody else kind of has it coming which well, is maybe, maybe, maybe not um maybe not uh, uh buster's wife because she's a very put upon character who just yeah. gets murdered with a hammer you know? yeah yeah that's true actually okay so there are a few instances, yeah there are a few represent reprehensible uh incidents in the book that's but yeah the the, the brian rusk one is is affecting because well, because he's a child and therefore he's he's innocent. He's not really carrying around so much baggage. Yeah. He's almost like the test case. Yeah, the, exactly. And he's patient um, zero, isn't he? Patient yeah. zero. And yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. And Leland Gaunt says, uh, when Brian Ross comes into the shop, he says, I wish all of my customers had uh, the wonder of the child, <laughs> which is a really <laughs> malevolent, a really nasty it thing to sounds say sounds lovely on the surface but you think oh actually no that's yeah, yeah, you, that's think five seconds, you think oh yeah that's quite a sweet thing to say <laughs> you think about it for a bit longer and you think that's a really horrible thing to say yeah because, <laughs> um, yeah the, the the gullibility and the trust the the uh unconditional trusting nature of the child and mm. i'm going to take full advantage of that and i'm going to crush you and i'm going to strike you down precisely because of the good in your heart. Yeah. Oh, that's bad. I mean, that's really bad. <laughs> so did, did you have like a, a favorite uh, moment in this book? Was there like one particular thing that really kind of stuck in your mind? <sighs> Gosh, there, I mean, you know, it's, you know what, it's full of great set pieces, needful things. Mm. It really is. Um, I loved when, I mean, it, it does sort of descend into comedy at some points when Danforth and Ace Merrill go off on their sort of wacky adventures toward the end of the book. I thought that's quite funny, actually. Yeah, then, I think that he's very deliberately named Buster Keaton because there is this element of almost slapstick, slapstick and yeah. farce about him, isn't there? Yeah. Um, although he's a nasty piece of work on top of oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I loved... Um, any scene with Wilma Jerzyk in is worth yeah. the price of admission alone. I, I, I found her to be this sort of mad Polish crossbreed of Miss Trunchbull from Matilda <laughs> and uh, the Red Queen from Alice's <laughs> Adventures uh, in Wonderland. And she's yeah. absolutely nutso. I love the way her husband describes as being like a like a totemic idol that he worships. <laughs> he doesn't love her, but he it's, it's like that kind of the, the cannibal god on the mountain that he just worships. It's really yeah, <laughs> for fear of being eaten himself. Yeah, yeah. She, any scene that she's in is great. It's great value. She's just completely nutso, and her ending <laughs> oh, entirely predictable. As much you know, it's bloody and gruesome. But you think, well, yeah, you kind of had that coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a bit, I, I really enjoyed a bit that kind of really affected me was uh, uh, it's a very small sequence, but it's where Ace goes to Boston to pick up uh, Mr. Gaunt's car, the, the oh, Tucker torpedo. Yes. 
That's a good, yes, that is a great scene. And because it's such like a book about the small town and small towns, when they go to the city, the city seems really alien and really weird. And he really and, paints the city as alien and weird. That's oh the, yeah, that's actually the that's the scene where the Lovecraftian graffiti crops up. Yogg-Sothoth rules, and there's a, a couple rules. of other references to Lovecraft. There's a Whipple Street, and there oh, he sells the, him. He sells him of Leng or something like that. He sells him cocaine from the plains of Leng. Yeah, exactly. Which is, which is lovely. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's so how it's, did it's, they grow cocaine in in Antarctica? <laughs> good going, you know. That's good. That's good coke. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's just maybe it's just a bit of ice. You know, he's just yeah. away a bit of ice. So and that was a nice. That reminded me of Christine as well because he goes to the garage and the the machinery starts moving around him and the car itself seems like this evil entity that he doesn't want to look at the engine because there's something horrible going on in the engine. I really love that sequence. It was kind of really scary. Yeah, it's it's weird when he gets to the city. It it, it feels almost like. If it, the way that I sort of interpreted his painting of Boston when Ace goes there it was almost like it was uh, post-apocalyptic. Yeah, because there's no there's no other human interaction when he goes <laughs> there. It's just him, the car, this very creepy warehouse. Mm. Uh, it's, it's out in sort of not in the center of the city. It's out in the sort of the blasted uh, sort of industrial wasteland of the city. And yeah, it, it feels like he's on a like you say, like an alien planet. Yeah, there's this lovely moment where he's he's looking out of the door of the garage and he he sees the dark kind of it's, it's the night's getting on and he sees the shadows and he kind of thinks well there's there's something lurking in those shadows and I really need to kind of get out of there. It's just yeah. that uncanniness that kind of he brings to that. Um, it's it shows that even when these people are are quite far gone, they're not there's still a little bit of sensibility about them, and yeah. I, I suppose that means that any of them, well, most of them could make the right decision and face up to, to their problems and what they're doing. But they... Well, yeah, I, a few of them do. I mean, Norris Ridgwick tries to commit suicide yes, when he realises what he's done. Norris, yeah. He, he when... redeems himself. Yeah, absolutely. And in one of the better, um, uh, kind of, sorry, the, the smaller moments, uh, the guy who runs the Mellow Tiger pub, I think it's called Henry Beaumont. That's Beaufort, right. Perhaps. Yeah, he wants to go out and kill Shu Priest immediately, but his his barman kind of says, oh, have a drink first, think about it. And once he's done that, he's actually like, okay, no, yeah, kind of the poison's out of the system now. I'm not going to react immediately to this anger. I'm going to just let it slide. He dies eventually anyway. He gets shot to death and uh, poisoned as well. I think they describe his heart exploding in the ambulance. But it is that point that not everybody is going to go immediately to hacking somebody up with a cleaver in the middle of the day. No, it's, it's, it's by degrees. Which I yeah. think, you know, it, which is right. There's very little in this world that would make somebody take that step from, you know, relatively well put together person to, yeah, well, like you say, meat cleaver through the skull. It's, <laughs> it, it, you, do, you don't make that step in one go, but you, um, you have to have your, your fears and your, and your, the decaying part of you it has to be fed a little bit, and exactly, yeah. yeah. And then after a while, then well, it's meat cleaver time. It's cleaving <laughs> time. It's it's, a, it's that wonderful scene with the riot between the the Catholics and the oh, Baptists. Yeah, that, 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 again, that's kind of tearing each other apart. It's, it's like it's like parts, isn't it? It's it's yeah. it, it goes it goes south. Well, it goes south quite slowly and then very suddenly, like most of these things do. So, mm. yeah, it's it's like fast the Baptist and the Catholic. I love the 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 um the horrible notes that they would, <laughs> that they that they'd ostensibly send to each other. Obviously, they've been planted by some of Gaunt's uh, uh, lackeys. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. You know, like the Baptist rat fucks and yeah, and the nun fuckers. <laughs> oh my god, that's yeah. <laughs> So a couple of questions before we move on to a little discussion about what you're up to at the moment. Uh, firstly, who who was your favourite character in Needful Things? Because it is a big uh, cast of characters. I who love who Wilma. Yeah, I love Wilma. She doesn't she doesn't last the duration, but I do like her. I think she was. I, I don't think I'd like to be around her, but I quite no, like reading her. about her from a distance. <laughs> um, I think Danforth is a great character. And he's yes. so oleaginous and, <laughs> and kind of repulsive, but. There's also a sense of, you know, 
there go I, but for the grace of God, uh, in, yeah. in the sense of the, the the trouble that he's got himself into with his uh, embezzlement and his gambling addiction. So for all his 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 faults, and he has many faults, the, you sense that the the gambling addiction and the thing which Leland Gaunt preys upon in in Keaton mm. that that isn't his fault you know it's it's something that could happen to anybody it's odd isn't it and there's a lovely sequence where he talks about going to uh lewiston race course for the first time and he comes alive at that yeah. point it's, it's a really it's melancholy sequence actually it really is because like i say it's not supernatural or anything it's just really sad and you kind of think oh god no he's He's doomed from this point on. It's, and it's like Hugh Priest with the foxtail. It just it just reminds people, it brings the reader the idea that, well, even if these people are bad, they might be mm-hmm. complete assholes. Well, they mm-hmm. weren't always. And, you know, things things happen to you and uh, life happens to you and you take certain paths and they change who you are. So yeah. you, better, and, but, you better bear but, your cross in the right way. Yeah, but also we always we always have that choice whether to buy or not, you know. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so um, the other, sorry, other I'd say the last, yeah, Polly is my other favorite character. Oh yeah, incredible, oh, incredible great. woman. Yeah. So one one last question about Needful Things before we move on. So uh, you, uh, Dan Jones, the the author, you're you're wandering through uh, Castle Rock, and you see the the Needful Things uh, shop. And you look in the window, and what 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 do you see? Oh, that's a cracker of a question. That is. <laughs> oh, well, at the moment it might be a PlayStation Five because I can't seem to get hold of one of them for love nor money. Oh, we can talk um, about that after if you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get hold of a pre-order, and it's just not happening. So if Mister Gaunt has got, has got one on the cards, then I'll I'll, I'll talk to him. I'll talk about that for, for a while. Um, yeah, I, I reckon I can pay that. I've got no problem with that. There are a couple of people around here that need a trick or two played on them as well. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's, 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 that's a good one. I can, I can dig it. Man. So, um, so, Dan, uh, last time we spoke to you, you were working on a couple of projects. You had Hole in the Sky, a sci-fi novel, and The Green Man, which was kind of a mashup of... Um, it was like a X Files meets Name of the Rose kind of thing, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Both sound absolutely fascinating. Any yeah. any kind of um, progress on those, or anything else you've been working on? Hole in the Sky is with a couple of agents at the moment, and mm-hmm. um, fingers crossed, I'll have it sold very soon, and then we can start looking for a publisher for it. Um, the Green Man. I'm just about to finish the first draft for that, and then we'll see how we go with that. It's a lot shorter than my other books it's probably going to come out at around 70 or eighty thousand words which okay. is you know fairly fairly standard i suppose a bit bit shorter than, than normal but so so that'll be finished soon the other thing i've got going on is um the uh, dramatization of manowar yes. which is being done uh via book streams at the beginning of the year uh, it was shortlisted for this uh, vote this public vote by a company called books office and uh, it's now been selected to be adapted for what's called a book stream, which is an online cast read uh, broadcast of the text itself with mm. various actors and actresses playing the different roles of the characters. Uh, I've signed the contract and we're in the casting process at the moment. Wow. Uh, and I can say I can say that as of today, we've just signed the first actor on and we've got... Uh, you've read Man of War, haven't you? So you know Loved the characters. We've, yeah. got, we've got Jessica Clark, who played the vampire queen Lilith in True Blood as, nice. as playing Naomi. That's so cool. Yeah, it's really cool, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, when I found that out, I thought, well, that's actually really, you know, <laughs> that's really happening now. Okay, that's different. It's real. Yeah. It's real. Yeah, got actually got real actors uh, playing <laughs> that i've written okay that's that's interesting um we're trying to find a couple of other actors obviously to fill the other key roles and uh then it's on to rehearsals once they're all signed up and hopefully uh well we've got it earmarked for november the broadcast which will be ticketed so you'll be able to next month good lord yeah so that's what they say i mean i'm taking it with a slight pinch of salt because it seems very they they can move quickly because there's no reliance on things like production design because this sure. is this is being done online. It's one it's a really cool innovation actually. It's it's taken advantage of the fact that 
we can't go to the theater and we would now we can't even go to the cinema mm. um so what are you going to do for entertainment well this 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 idea so like a cross between a play and an audio book and a teleconference mm-hmm. which is a really sort of strange combination of things but it it seems to work and you get you dial into your teleconference and you have the actors on your call acting out the parts for you uh, so it's a really it's a really interesting idea and i you know i do hope that it that it works uh, i haven't got an exact broadcast date for man of war but uh, mm-hmm. i'll ping you a line as soon as i do oh no we'll 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 we'll, we'll let everybody know about that was it um was it tricky kind of um adapting it for this kind of format no like well it's like i said it's the the audio part the audio book part of it sorry is it's it's like it's it's literally that it's a, it's a reading of the text and so you mm. will have um, um the people narrating their chapters so in man of war each main character yeah, yeah. narrates a chapter uh, from their close third person perspective um so you take out things like dialogue tags and mm. you take out things whereas if it says he moved over there then you say <laughs> i moved over there so it becomes first person so the, the the adaptations to the text is minimal actually mm. um so yeah it's 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 very very close to the original text i mean it's it's a really a straightforward read through but but yeah but with the actors and actresses playing the playing the roles it's really yeah. interesting are, are you adding like um, sound effects and music um there might be a bit of music i don't think there is any sound effects although a uh, we may do a bit of post-production once we get the audio track and turn it into uh, an audio book. Cool. Which, another, which, yeah, which I think is another interesting thing where you have the audio book read by a cast. So it'd be like a radio play. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, did you, did you hear the Max Brooks's adaptation of World War Z for audio book? Oh no, that sounds good. It's very good. Cause it's a similar thing where, because each chapter is, is, um, written supposedly by a different character you have a different actor doing each chapter and it gives us this lovely i feel of a like a documentary of an actual kind of performance piece rather than an audiobook it works really well oh well i shall have a listen to that because that might be of some relevance yeah it's a great book anyway i love, uh, love a bit of what was said yeah and <laughs> um, so uh, before we go uh, always uh, i ask the same two questions uh, what are you reading at the moment and what do you think everybody else should be reading at the moment at the moment i'm sort of plodding my way through lovecraft actually ah, okay. uh, i only read bits and pieces before and i managed to get hold of the complete works of lovecraft on kindle for yep. other e-readers are available i suppose <laughs> i got it for kindle for 50p and i thought oh, well i'm having that that, so yeah. I'm uh, working my way through that, and he's an interesting character. His Lovecraft. <laughs> I mean, obviously, everybody knows that, but it's worth saying again. I think he's an interesting <laughs> character. And he's and, a complex uh, dude. That Lovecraft. He's a complex, yeah. complex dude, and there are a lot of yeah, there's a lot of sort of um, paradoxes around Lovecraft. I don't quite understand, and yeah. Anyway, if we start talking about Lovecraft, we may not stop. That's I was what I'm going to say. I would love to that's do it around Lovecraft. That's what I'm reading at the moment, Lovecraft. Um, and then, you know, I'm, on my reading list, I've got A Brief History of Selling Seven Killings by Marlon James and Rosewater by Taddy Thompson. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to those two. They've been on my reading list for a while. And, well, what's the other question? What should everybody read? Okay. I've got a good one for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and last time you picked crime and punishment just i know i want change of pace memory. change of pace this time uh i i know uh, an author called brian wigmore he's an excellent writer he's a fantasy writer and he's writing a series called the fire stealers and uh it's a four book series the first two have been published the first one's called the goddess project and the second one's called the imperious proof they are really incredible books they are kind of sort of quasi steampunk fantasy although that's not really doing them justice they're more like a uh, sort of a shamanistic epic mm-hmm. uh where and the, the the central premise is that these uh, two main characters a boy and a girl they're about the same age 16 or 17 they are we meet them in media res in the middle of things mm-hmm. looking they they have lost their memory and they can't remember whether they are brother and sister or whether they are lovers Oh. And they're trying to piece together their memory um, and it leads them on a 
strange shamanistic journey through this uh, alternative uh, Edwardian seafaring uh, environment, and it, it's, oh, it's really it's a really magnificent set of stories. And I, I'm eagerly awaiting the third entry in the series myself, but I can heartily recommend the first two. Uh, go out and seek them. Seek them out. They're really good. Thank you very much for the recommendations. So that brings us up to one hour exactly of Needful Things chat. Thank you so much to my guest, Dan Jones. We'd love to have you back again another time. Thank you. Lovely to be here, as always. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you can write to us at the Constant Reader Podcast at gmail.com, that would be lovely. And a big hello to all of our new listeners that we got from the Abominable Book Club bookmark giveaway i'm a big fan of the abominable book club myself it's 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 one of my favorites and it's lovely to have so many new people listening into this please take care of yourself and uh, don't sell your soul and just ask yourself is it really worth it thank you very much goodbye